Today, we actually finish the riveting book of Leviticus. Okay? And, and hopefully, you know, I say that as, as tongue in cheek because we think Leviticus isn't that riveting, but I pray that as we've made our way through this, this, uh, book of the Bible that's oftentimes overlooked and obscured by Christians, that there's a whole lot for us as believers in Christ. That there's a whole lot more riveting things that are here than maybe we first notice our first read through, right? There's a lot more here for believers in Christ. And so today, uh, we went through this past week, Leviticus 26 and 27, only two chapters for the whole week. How many of you read? Look at that. See, cause it was only two chapters, right? It was, it was easy for us to do. Um, and the sermon today is called very simply, how much do you love God? Now be careful about how you answer this question. Right? How much do you love God? I think all of us would like to say, I love God this much. Right? If I bring out my five-year-old self, right? I love God this much. Wouldn't we all love to say something like that? What's interesting is when we consider answering that question. Leviticus, I want to go into the unchanging nature of God. There are a lot of people who would say that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are somehow separate from from one another. And I want to demonstrate that the God that we serve is the same God that's revealed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And, and what we see in Leviticus chapter 26, the same nature and the same heart of God that exists in Leviticus as God is laying out the law for the people of Israel to follow is the same God who sent his son to die on the cross for you and me. And we see those same attributes worked out both in Old Testament and New Testament even at the end of time. So a couple things that I want us to look at is an enduring nature of God by looking at a couple places in the scripture for an underlying basis to understand the scriptures we're going to read today. The first one is found in Malachi, last chapter of the, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. God simply says this to the people of Israel, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And he's talking about his covenantal promises. I don't change. I have an unchanging nature about me. This is very important for us to understand as we're going to be reading uh, our parts of Leviticus today. The second place I want us to turn real quick is Hebrews chapter 13. And verse 8, and we see these words that are said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Anybody who said that Jesus would change with the times has not read that verse. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we see the equivalent unchanging nature of God the Father in the Old Testament attributed also to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus ties them both together himself through his words. John chapter 14 verses 23 and 24 are the undergirding passage that we really need to understand if we're going to fully appreciate what we're going to read today in Leviticus. 
Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. Jesus proclaimed in the gospel of John that I and the father are one. And so as he proclaims this obedience to himself, he says these are not even his words. You want to show your love for me, you'll obey my commands. He who does not love me will not obey my commands. And these words you hear are not my own. They come from the Father who sent me. The same unchanging nature that's found in the Father and in the Son are here together showing that Jesus and the Father are truly one by saying, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If he does not love me, does not obey my commands. Sometimes when we start thinking about obedience to Christ, we get tripped up and we're saying, oh, we're, we're in a works-based salvation if we say that we need obedience in order uh, to to receive salvation. Well, the scripture is very clear that that is not the case. What happens is that Jesus has died for us and provided salvation for us apart from our own works. There's nothing that you can do or I can do to merit that. However, consistently in the scriptures throughout Old and New Testament, our love for Jesus, our love for the Father is shown through our obedience to his commands. And so while salvation is not tied to our works, our love for Jesus and our love for the Father is consistently throughout the scripture. And that understanding has to undergird what we're going to read. Because what we're going to read, those of you who read this week, was it a little surprising that we got blessings and curses in in Leviticus. A lot of times when we think of blessings and curses, we go to Deuteronomy. We'll go to Deuteronomy and we'll look at the blessings and the curses that are done from chapters 28 through 30. And we're going to be there later on this year. But that's the most famous passage. That's where we go and that's the pronouncement, you know, of these blessings, of these cursings on the mountain. So that the people of Israel would know what they had for God. But that is the second telling of the law. The first one's here in Leviticus. And we have to understand that these things that God wants to bless his people with, this obedience that he wants them to walk in, that his understanding is that if you love me, you will obey my commands. He who does not love me does not obey my commands. And we're going to learn a lot about love of God, how that works itself out in our lives and how he responds to it. As we look at this passage of scripture, turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 26. And we're going to look at a lot of this chapter today, breaking it down in three different sections so that we can see how God treats this idea of his commands, his obedience, and how that relates to our love for him and the people of Israel's love for him. Starting in verse 1. Do not make any idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season 
and the ground will yield its crop and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until the grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting. And you will eat all the food you want and live in the safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out and make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. First of all, what an amazing promise of God. We've gone through Leviticus and all of these sacrifices that were going to cost the people of Israel something, right? They had sacrifices. They had offerings that they were supposed to bring according to whenever they have sinned. To bring a sin offering before the Lord, a guilt offering before the Lord, a burnt offering before the Lord, a peace offering before the Lord. A grain offering before the Lord. These are the offerings that are offered to God. And they were supposed to do that. Seems costly, doesn't it? Then they're given a list of prohibitions of things that they're not supposed to do. That the other nations around them were doing. They were not supposed to prostitute themselves in that way. So that they would be recognized as a people who were different. Who were set apart for God. All of these things that they were supposed to do. Yes, it was going to cost them. Yes, they were supposed to give everything of themselves. And this is God's return on their obedience. My covenant promise to you is that if you do these things and worship me in these prescribed ways, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make sure that you have abundance. That your harvest not going to go bad. Not only that, you'll still be eating on your harvest when you're harvesting for the next year. So you're not having to worry. You're going to have so much. Not just that, you won't be oppressed by anybody. But people will not want to be around you because you are going to be so powerful because of me. They're not going to want to mess with you. Even to the point that savage and wild beasts would be chased away from Israel. I was looking at the news the other day and and looked at Miami and they had sharks swimming around in the waters right there. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to say, God, I'm being obedient to you. Make the sharks go away. Right? Seriously, this is exactly what he's talking about because they're wild animals that can actually tear people apart. It wasn't unfamiliar for lions to be in that area. And you know what? While lions are majestic, amazing animals... I don't want to pet one. And God is saying, I have all of this for you if you will be obedient to me. Now, it's a costly obedience. Please, let's understand everything that we've read in Leviticus. This is a costly obedience. They're giving away a tenth of all of their herds to the Lord. That's part of the tithe of the land. That they are supposed to give. These things are already his. 
And then on top of that, they're giving these offerings to God, whether it be the burnt offerings or the grain offerings or the free will offerings, the peace offerings, the the sin offerings, the guilt offerings. All of these are going to God on top of what was already given to him. This is a costly thing that they're giving. And God's end of his covenant is saying, but if you do these things, then I'm going to give you all of this in return. And in my opinion, that's quite a deal, right? I think what God is offering and blessing far outweighs anything they think that they're paying in cost. I wish we all saw it that way, but we don't. Sinful nature, seeing our giving to God as a bill rather than a blessing, Seeing the understanding concerning us doing things for God because of our love for him, because of what he's done for us, what he's doing for us. A lot of times we're just like, man, that cost too high. Leads us to disobedience. Which is interesting because the section for disobedience, whether we're looking at the Deuteronomy passage or we're looking at this passage here in Leviticus, is much larger Then the obedience passage. The obedience passage, this is my result. This is what God is saying. This is my result for you. This is what I will do for you if you are obedient to the covenant that I have given. But if you are disobedient, here are the consequences of those actions. And that's what we move into next is the consequences. So Leviticus 14 through 39 Long section of scripture and they build on one another. So take a listen to all the things that are said here. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If in spite of these things you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile toward me, I myself will be hostile toward you and afflict you for your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword upon you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. And when you would withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you and you will be given into enemy hands. And when I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake bread in one oven and they will dole out the bread by weight and you will eat but you will not be satisfied. If in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger, I will be hostile toward you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. 
You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on lifeless forms of, the, of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins, and I will lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land Sabbath years and all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate the land will have its rest. It did not have during the Sabbaths that you lived in it. As for those who are left... I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. And they will run as though fleeing from the sword, and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land, in the land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also, because of their father's sins, they will waste away. Do you hear that progression as time goes on? Sometimes we read this and we think God just throwing all that down to begin with. No, it doesn't start with that. It's one after another. Here's what's going to happen first. And if that doesn't get your attention and correct you, then this is what's going to happen. And if that doesn't do it, I'm going to do this. And if that doesn't do it, I'm doing this. And it just gets progressively worse, doesn't it? And you have to understand that God's desire in enforcing the covenant that they are breaking through disobedience is to draw them back to obedience. Everything about these punishments, this wrath, this judgment that God is bringing forth is to bring them back to their senses and say, why am I doing this? God promised all of this for me. And I keep going in this direction. And he sends terrible things that happen to me and my family. And and instead of being faithful, I, I doubled down on my disobedience. And somehow expect the blessing of God. And so he treats us according to the scripture as our sins deserve. And we start tasting the fruit and the consequences of our actions. And man, we don't like it. And he sends a sword against us. And he sends the the animals against us. And he sends the nations against us. And he gets so bad that at one point he says, I will make your land desolate. The land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. I will make it so desolate that even your enemies don't want to be there. And then the land will finally have rest. See, the chapter before in chapter 25, which we read last week, talked about that there was supposed to be a Sabbath year. That every seven years, that seventh year was set aside to the Lord. The land was supposed to be rest. And during that time of rest, that, that was the land producing fruit for God. And the people of Israel were not supposed to plow during that year. They were supposed to take from what was produced from the land because they were giving the land rest. And God was going to provide for them during that time. But if you'll notice, when the judgments come, 
the foregone conclusion is that the people of Israel have not observed those Sabbath years. And so when it kicks them out, the land is going to have rest. It's a very interesting statement. So when we look at the history of Israel, so this is happening here during Moses' time, about 1500 B.C. And during this time with Moses, we would go all the way. We would see, if we go into the history of Israel, we would see that there was a time of Judges. And the time of Judges leads up to, toward the end of Judges, you see this statement that's first mentioned in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, where it says this, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is not an idea of them having an earthly king. This is them rejecting God as their king. It's those actions that lead forth to what we read in 1 Samuel when they install an earthly king before them and the fate of the nation of Israel and later the two kingdoms, the, upper, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah would go according to the faithfulness of the king and the administration that's there. But it's interesting that at the end of that time, we see unfaithfulness continue to well up, first through Israel and eventually through Judah. Israel's taken away around 710 BC by Assyria. And then Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem in 786 BC. And the account of that is found in Second Chronicles chapter 36. It's summarized really well. I want you guys to take a look at it and see if you recognize the language that is used. Because when all of this takes place, it's amazing that hindsight is now 2020. Starting in verse 15. Second Chronicles chapter 36, the Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. And he brought up against them the king of the, the Babylonians who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar and he carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. And they set fire to, the, to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and they burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And he carried into exile Babylon, the remnant, who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him. And his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation it rested. Until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Notice the language there. It's right here after this. God is enforcing his covenant to the people of Israel. And you know what? The land is going to have rest for how long? 70 years. All the time in which they had not practiced that Sabbath resting that they were supposed to do. That's 490 years. That's the entirety of the time of the kings and then some. And I believe it probably stretches back to that verse in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6 where it says, And in those days Israel had no king. 
Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We see that God is very serious concerning his covenant and very long-suffering concerning his people wishing for them to come to repentance. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing that when we see judgment of God, sometimes we look at it in the wrong way. When we look at judgment, we see the wrath of God being poured out. We see these progressions of increasing judgment upon nations and people and people who are called by his name. We don't understand that this call is a call back for people to come to obedience to Christ. To realize that these things are happening because of disobedience. That what should happen for you and for me is a repentance, is a turning away. Is to remember all the good things that we have in Jesus. And to come back to our senses. But we read in the New Testament this same pattern. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. Something you've heard from this pulpit quite a bit. But I want you to notice the progression. It's the same type of progression. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, men also abandoned the natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although They know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you guys see that progression that the wrath of God being placed upon man creates this degraded society? And God wants that wrath to have them come back to him. And all we see is a doubling down. A doubling down on disobedience in so much that they know that this is what God's righteous decree says, but they want to keep doing it and they encourage others to do it as well. 
even at the end of time, we look at the book of Revelation, we see the same things happening. If we look at Revelation chapter 9, at the end of this chapter, we have had the seal judgments that have come forth. The seven seal judgments have already taken place. This is after the sixth trumpet judgment. And if you go through Revelation, you read them, these are bad things that are happening to humanity. And it's interesting, this statement that is here in Revelation, at the end of chapter 9, starting in verse 20, it says, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. All of these things are happening. God is showing himself in ways that you can't deny that he's there. And all of these people are still unrepentant. And the judgments just keep coming. And then we go to the bold judgments. This is after the harvesting of the earth. One like a son of man who comes and harvests the earth. We read that in Revelation chapter 14. These are the the bold judgments. That after these bold judgments are done, the wrath of God is poured out. And the wrath of God is done during this time, poured out upon mankind. And it's still interesting, the language that is there. In the fourth and fifth bowl judgments, starting in verse 8 of chapter 16, it says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. And they were seared by intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness and men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. And we see these judgments of God coming forth. And these judgments that are there among God is to draw people back into a right relationship with him. This is what he wants. We see it all the way through the final judgment. What do they want? What does he want them to do? He wants them to repent, to turn away, to recognize him as Lord and Savior and above all. But they refuse. They would rather continue living this life despite all the judgment that is coming down upon them. They would rather that than a humble admittance of the hostile life they have lived against God. And see, this is the hard part for you and for me. Because we don't like seeing disobedience as hostility, as hatred. But the scripture defines it no other way. Jesus said, those who love me will obey my commands. Those who do not love me will not obey my commands. These words that you hear me say are not my own. They're from the Father who sent me. 
and all of those things when God is judging the people of Israel and he puts down this covenant. When you're in disobedience, he constantly uses the word hostility. In all of this disobedience, it is hostility toward God. It's not deference toward him. It's not, it's not like, oh, I'm just apathetic toward God. It is hostility toward God. The problem is we Think that if we just change our language a little bit, it doesn't make it as bad. We can use the word, well, I've been disobedient, or I can just be generic and I can say, I sinned. You guys don't understand that disobedience with God, not, not conforming ourselves to the image of Christ, is not to love him, it's to be hostile toward him. It's against him and his commands. And all the while, we walk around in our society today as if we need to tell God that he needs to conform to our image. And all we're doing is being hostile toward God and his image where the fullness is received in Jesus Christ. See, we don't like calling disobedience and sin, which we've kind of made a little bit nicer than it really is. It's hostility. It's deserving of all these punishments. All that stuff we're reading in Revelation is what they deserve and what we deserve if it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's the beauty of it. For the people of Israel, God wanted to give them blessing through obedience because through obedience we show our love. Jesus wants to give you and me blessing for obedience because in obedience we show our love for Jesus. How much do you love Jesus? How well are you obeying him? It's really the answer. And there's no other answer because in areas that you are not loving Jesus, that you are not in obedience, you are not loving Jesus, you are hostile toward him. These are not small things. And yet you and I have sanitized the gospel so much that we don't realize how much we've been saved from. And the beauty of God's relationship with us and God's relationship with the people of Israel is that he stands there waiting For you and me to turn away from these things, to repent, to be obedient, to love him again, so he can lavish upon us these blessings again. But it comes at a cost. Ultimately, it comes at the cost of his son. But there's a cost for you and me. And it's a cost we don't like to admit today. But if we want healing, we have to. Going back to Leviticus 26. Starting in verse 40. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land for the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it it lies desolate without them. 
They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. Did you guys see the cost? Here's the cost. Is a heart broken before God realizing what we've done? Not one that stands in defiance that says, God, you have to accept me as I am. It's one that says that I recognize the sin that I've done. And I recognize it as treachery. And I recognize it as hostility toward the God whom I say I serve, who sent his son Jesus to die for me. I recognize that these are my failings. I recognize that Jesus died for me. And because of that, he's going to uphold this covenantal relationship That his blood being spilled on the cross for you and me is enough to sanctify us, to make us holy again. But it comes at the cost of you and me saying, this is on me. I did this. I'm hostile to God. I need repentance. I need to turn away from these things. He's done nothing wrong. It's all me. And he stands there waiting for you and me. Ready to receive us. That's the beauty of the love of our God. It's mirrored in a parable that Jesus shared that many of us know. You can find it in Luke chapter 15. It's the parable of the prodigal son. But I want you to take a look at this in the light of the scriptures that we've read today concerning the attitude towards sin and understanding the rebellion that you and I have toward God and understand the difference that that makes. And we see reflected in the father of this parable, the heart of the father that's found in Leviticus, the heart of the father that sent his son to die for you and me. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Our disobedience is like this prodigal son. But you'll notice what this son had to do. He had to, he had to get it, he came to that point where it's like, wait a second, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Why am I doing this? And when we're stuck in our sin, how many of us can be saying in in the back of our minds, why am I doing this? I'm causing so much destruction to my family, to everybody around me. Why do I keep doing what I shouldn't be doing? If I just went back to my father, he has all of this and more. I, I don't even want to go back as a son. Just hire me as a servant. And the father, seeing his son a long way off, runs to him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, puts sandals on his feet, and calls for a celebration. And the son, still before the father, says this, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. See, he didn't get out of the confession. The humbling, the humility. But God was there. The Father was there. The heart of the Father is to meet us at that moment in time and to say, right now, anew, you go from being dead to being alive. Like that. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Doesn't mean there won't be a hard road to hoe. But I'll tell you something. That new life begins immediately because of Jesus But do you see your sin as that bad? Do you not recognize that the things and the troubles that come because of your sin are a grace of God to drive you back to Jesus? Because that's what he was doing for the people of Israel. That's what he does for you and me. That's what he will do at the end of time when the judgments come that he wants them to repent. He wants things to get so bad that they come to that saying, if I just went with God, it would all go away. It would all be better. Do they not realize what Jesus has done for them? But the love of God is worked out in obedience. you stand with me I don't know where you are in your relationship with Christ I really don't 
I pray that you know him as Lord and Savior. I pray you understand how good a God he really is, that he has sent his son to die on the cross for your sin, no matter what your sin is. But you have to recognize one thing, that your disobedience is hostility toward God. Nothing else. It's hostility toward him. And you have to bury that at the cross of Christ, realizing that he has already paid the sacrifice to make you right. You have to come in admittance, in repentance, humility, and humility before the throne of God, and he will lift you up. Sin's not just a little bad thing. Sin is what sent our Savior to the cross. To treat it as anything less is to play around with something that could cause irreparable damage to you and those around you. If you need to repent, turn away from whatever sin today, if you need to start taking a relationship with Jesus seriously, if you have hostility in your heart because you're walking in sin and you think that he has to accept you the way that you are right now, you can bury that hostility today by coming humbly before the throne of grace because he will meet you and run to you and offer you life through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask elders to come forward. If you have a need, whatever that need is. If you know somebody else who's been rebelling against that and you have not really understood how terrible that rebellion is and you need to pray for them, our elders are up here to pray for those as well. We're not perfect people up here. We're not better than you guys. It's the role that God has us in. But if you need today to make yourself right before God, start making your way there. We'll run and catch you in the middle. And rejoice and celebrate that one's come home. God, thank you so much for our time together today. Pray in the name of Jesus that we would understand that your grace and blessing is there for everybody who will humble themselves and come before you. Because you sent Jesus to die for all of our sins. But our sins are rebellion, Lord. Our sins are our hostility towards you. God, we don't want to be a hostile people. We want to be a people who are in love with you because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And God, I pray if there are any today that are hostile, that they would put down that hostility and realize how much you love them and accept the free gift of grace of Jesus and that their love for you would work itself out in obedience. just pray that you'll do work today in my heart and hearts of everybody else here and help us never to see sin as something to be played around with or something less than what it really is and thank you for the grace that covers in Jesus name Amen